A quick health, health update. That's a terrible way to start a health update after you've had a stroke. Yikes. I'm doing pretty well. I had a doctor's meeting this morning, and he feels confident that I'm, I'm on my way to recovery. It's simply going to take time. He thinks most of what I'm experiencing right now, the most acute symptoms I'm, I'm experiencing right now, have to do with the fact that I can't sleep well and I'm not sleeping regularly. So it's too soon to diagnose, but there is a post-stroke insomnia that a, a lot of people in my shoes end up suffering. Hopefully it's not that. It's simply after, in, the, in the wake of the trauma, my body is still not yet calm enough to, to trust itself to sleep. So, so pray for my, my soul and my mind and my brain and my body that I can rest because I think a lot of what I'm feeling and a lot of what's happening to me is at least intensified by the sleeplessness. He continues, the doctor continues to be confident that I will, I'll make a full recovery and that I'm on my way to a full recovery. So I, I simply have to give myself time, give my body time to to restore itself. So I'm, I'm trying to eat well and practice mindfulness and prayer, giving myself to the work that I need to do and not overworking. Uh, someone had given me the advice, actually given my wife the advice and she gave it to me to work in short bursts and then to give myself time to rest after that. And so that's what I've been doing. And I've been able to do more than I think I expected to be able to do. Although, of course, it's far from my normal routine, but that's okay. I mean, I'm I'm embracing not the stroke, but the aftermath of it as the, an opportunity, as a gift. And I think there are all kinds of gifts I'm sure hidden inside of this experience that I want to I want to attend to. So, thank you to everyone who's praying. Thank you to everyone who's supporting us. Your words have always been helpful in this time. So some of you have commented about not wanting to say too much for fear that we're we're overwhelmed. But trust me, it's good to hear. Even if it's just a short text or email, it's good to hear that you're thinking of us and that you're praying for us. So thank you for that. There are two, th two themes in the text. Every time I stumble, we're all going to think about what that means. There are two themes in the text. Of course, there are more than two, but two that I want to attend to. And I think, I don't have a great metaphor for it. Maybe Ezekiel's wheel within the wheel. But there, there's something about the ways in which they overlap. And both of them are movements, rhythms. The movement and rhythm of presence and absence, and the movement and rhythm of remembering and forgetting. And I, I want to talk about the ways in which our life with God works itself out, dwells at the heart of those rhythms within the wheels, within the wheel, or within the wheels, yeah, within the wheels. Our life with God takes shape, moves, has its being. And it's in this constant rhythm of presence and absence, a sense of God's nearness to us. So God awareness 
and forgetting and remembering a kind of self-awareness, the way we've known ourselves, the way we've known others, the way we think we have been known. So those are the overarching themes. Let me come first to the psalm, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, notice the past tense. We were like those who dream. When the Lord restored, we were like those who dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. So this is this is an act of remembering. The Lord restored and we were filled with joy. Then they said among the nations, those who were watching us, saw what happened and said, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad indeed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord like the watercourses of the Negev. So there's this move from what has happened, a remembering, the Lord restored, our neighbors saw it and marveled, into the present, an acknowledgement in testimony, the Lord has done good things for us, and then a shift in that moment, in that presence, a shift to inviting God, begging God, invoking God to act. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses of the Negev. Let the, let the water run again. Right? The water has dried up. We need it to run again. The wilderness has overwhelmed the miracle of the water. The, the sun has quenched the source of life. Let, let the waters flow again. And then there's this look to the future in anticipation, in confidence. Those who sowed with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying the seed, will come again with joy, shouldering their sheaves. So this this psalmist is living right in this the nexus of the moment that we call now with a way of remembering and a way of anticipating that is bound up with a sense of presence and absence. The Lord has restored and yet we need to be restored again. Right? So there's a way in which it is true the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad indeed. And yet in that gladness, that present tense gladness that is bursting forth from our remembrance of what God did for us, there is this new need and, and a request for God to meet that new need. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. So there's a way in which gladness remains. There's a memory of what God has done and still a need for fortunes to be restored. This, this is the life of faith is a life of rhythms, a life of seasons. And one, one of the problems that I think all of us feel all of the time is that we live largely, not just in our churches, like our lives are largely cut off from the rhythms of nature. And we live lives that are largely artificial and some of that is good. Much of it is harmless. But one of the kind of unintended effects of living in a world in which we have artificial light and we have ways of accessing food quickly, preparing food quickly, we have ways of artificial ways of easing pain, all that goes with a society as technologically advanced as ours that artificiality cuts us off from the rhythms of nature, from the seasons of seed time and harvest. 
from the, the simple movements of the day and of the week and of the year. And because of that, we can slowly start to lose touch with the fact that our relationship to God is a relationship of seed time and harvest. It's a relationship of presence and absence. And I'll say more about what that does and doesn't mean. But it's if, if you think of it like this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives us this language that through the fall, creation becomes nature. And through sin, nature is hardened into the unnatural. So if not that all that is artificial is unnatural, but if our lives are largely artificial and we are also hardened by our own sin or by the sins of those around us into the unnatural, so our lives are dominated by the artificial and the unnatural, then we can't be in touch with nature, with the world, even in its fallenness. And if we can't be in touch with nature, then we won't be able to, to be open to creation. Another way of thinking about this is it's the sacramental resides within, imbues in, in it. What's the word that Marion uses? It saturates the natural. And in order to, to come up into that saturation, to, to come up against it, to, to taste and see it, we have to be in touch with nature. And so I think one of the reasons we fast during Lent is, is a way of trying to bring ourselves into touch with nature so that we can be in touch with that which is creation, that which is sacramental. So I don't want to spend too much time on that larger framework, but hopefully you have a feel for what I'm saying there. And I think this psalm shows us that the, the life of faith is a life of rhythms. It's a life of awareness of things remembered and things anticipated. It's a life of praise, but also request and a sense that God has been with us and not with us. So if we turn then to the gospel text, there's this remarkable line, which we, we've all heard, but unfortunately we all, almost always heard it as a kind of political statement or, or an excuse for our politics of indifference to the poor. You know, what Jesus is in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Mary has come to wash his feet. There's so much I'd like to say about this just really briefly. The fact that in the previous chapter in John, Lazarus has been raised, but there's no rejoicing. There's no scene of celebration that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The next time we see, in fact, there's a darkness that hangs over, a, a heavy cloud that hangs over that miracle because it's clear that this has triggered the response that will lead to Jesus' death. And Mary somehow knows this, right? Mary recognizes what what it means, what, what Jesus has done, what it's going to mean. And she comes and prepares him for his burial. It's an astounding act, right? Her, her act of awareness of what it means that her brother has been brought back to life again. I, I do think it's also worth mentioning that Jesus is drawn to these people. He's drawn to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Lazarus is a man who's always named last here, which is unusual in that world, right? For the woman to be named first, for the women to be named first, and then their brother to be named last. He's an unmarried man who never speaks in the biblical texts. And that is almost surely a sign that, that something unusual is happening with him. Some have suggested that perhaps, I think it was John Swinton who suggested that perhaps 
Lazarus was disabled in in some way. Whatever it is, this is a this is an abnormal family. Right? This is an, an odd group. Two women, two sisters, and a brother living alone or living un, they're not married without children. And Jesus is drawn to them. He's drawn to their house. And I think that says so much about who Jesus is, that he, in in the hardest seasons of his life, these are the, the people he finds friendship with. And perhaps in part because it's the comfort of his own family, that, that he grew up in a home that was abnormal. He grew up knowing that all of the neighbors were whispering about what his family was and what who his mom was. Whatever the reason, he's drawn to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he comes here, and Mary sees and understands. And she takes this costly perfume, and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. I wonder if this is perfume that is somehow left over from what happened with Lazarus. That Lazarus is back again. This is perfume that, that wasn't used on his body. And yet here it is used on Jesus. Regardless... She takes it and fills the house with the, the fragrance. And Judas, of course, is snide about it. What about this could have been given to the poor? And that that kind of why question, we have to we have to be wary that there are all kinds of sinful motivations and intentions that hide inside our seemingly pious questions. But Jesus' response is telling. And, and I think points to these themes that I want to show that I want to hold up this week. <clears throat> Jesus said, leave her alone. Says this to Judas, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. And again, we don't know when she bought it or what she was thinking when she bought it. If Did she buy it for Lazarus? Did she? Why, why did she have this on hand? And how long has she been aware that this is, I said a moment ago that she notices that notices it at her brother's resurrection. His resuscitation, maybe, is a better word. But we don't know. Jesus says, She bought it so she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with me, but you do not always have me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And I want to I want to sit for just a moment with that. You do not always have me. Because, of course, there's one way in which, of course, we always have you. Right. Jesus is always with us. Think about the end of Matthew's gospel. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So obviously, in, in the most basic sense, Jesus is always with us. Jesus is God. He's at the quote-unquote right hand of God, and God is omnipresent, as we say. So of course there's a sense in which Jesus is always here. And Jesus is always for us. Right? So in the sense of you always have me, it's not only that he is present, he's attentive. He's lovingly present, kindly present. So what does he mean, you do not always have me? Now, again, in some obvious way, he is referring to his coming death, that he will die. He will be dead. And, and I think certainly that's true as well. So in, in one sense, this could just be, it could be read as simply, an anticipation of the of that time in which he is dead. Maybe it's said specifically to Judas, you do not always have me, but it's plural, the pronoun, and 
it's pretty clear he doesn't mean Judas alone. So I, I think there's a deep mystery here. You always have the poor with you. You do not always have me. And if we come back to Matthew, Maximus' confessor is helpful here because Maximus makes the point, he draws attention to the fact that it's in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And that at the end of the Gospel, he says, I am with you always. Having said that the poor are with you always earlier in the Gospel. And so Matthew says, Maximus says in Matthew, Jesus is the poor man. The way in which Jesus is with us is as the one in need. What you do to the least of these you did to me. When did we see you? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you sick? You always have the poor with you. That is how I am with you always. I'm, I'm present to you in the needs of your neighbors. So if we, if we take that lead and come back to, to John... What is being said here, and I think this is specifically a critique of Judas and those who think like Judas, is that you're going to try to care for people in ways that are charitable but condescending. Like your your piety is going to lead you to think that you're do you're saying something about yourself when you're caring for those who are in need. And it will make you miss the way in which I'm present to you in a poverty that you don't find useful, in the poor that you do not recognize as poor, because you are only thinking about people who are poor in the way you need them to be poor, to make yourself look like a philanthropist, to look charitable, to look like a saint, to look righteous. And so I, I think the wisdom here is that Jesus, the deeper wisdom, is that Jesus is not always present to us in the way that we want. In fact, I think he rarely is present to us in the way that we want. But he is always present to us in the needs of our neighbors. So if we, if we hold that in mind, let's come to that theme of remembering and forgetting that is in Paul. I'll just take a couple of minutes with this, and then we'll go to Isaiah and wrap up. I need to try to keep this brief. Again, working in bursts. So this is an astounding text, of course, Philippians 3. I think it's Paul's way of insisting that, at least one way of reading it, is as Paul letting you know how he is the most righteous man who's ever lived. Out of all of the nations, he was a Jew. He was of the people of Israel, so he's more righteous than the Gentiles. Out of all of Israel, he is of the tribe of Benjamin, so he's more righteous than other tribes. He's a Hebrew born of Hebrews, so he's even within his own tribe, a remarkably, uh, he, he's a singular figure. He's a Pharisee. So even of the Hebrew, of Hebrews, Hebrews, born of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel, he is in fact a Pharisee and not just a Pharisee. He's a zealous one, which picks up the story of Phineas and a persecutor of the church. And in fact, he says, in terms of the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. So I think one way of seeing this is that he's just drawing smaller and smaller circles to say at the end of the day, I'm the most, by those standards, I was as righteous as anyone ever had been. Yet I forgot all of that. Right? So all of that has to do with Paul's self-regard, his self-understanding, the way in which he saw himself and therefore also saw God. But now on this side of his encounter with Jesus, he remembers it all differently. And what he remembers 
is what he forgot and why he forgot it. And he says, I counted all of that as loss because of Christ. And I, what I wanted was the knowing of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. I wanted to know him. And I wanted to know him in that paradoxical, as he says it this way, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. So what Paul is, is seeking is this sharing, this knowing of Christ in the sharing of resurrection and sufferings. But that's only possible in a sharing of his death. And death as the forgetting and the being forgotten. Death as absence. Absence from God and the absence of God. Absence from our loved ones and the absence of our loved ones. So that what Paul is saying is, I wanted to enter into the depths of forgetting and being forgotten. Absence and abandonment. Because that is where Christ's fullness is known. That if, if we don't come to accept that, then we're always going to be thinking that remembering and presence, the seasons of our lives that are about remembering and presence, those are the good seasons. Those are the seasons in which we're doing what we should and God is doing what God has promised. But Paul is recognized is that all of this, presence and absence, remembering and forgetting, all of it is imbued with the life of God. And Christ has to be known in that way, both the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. And so what Paul has learned is how to forget rightly and, and therefore how to live in the present and how to anticipate the future rightly. He, he knows how to remember and therefore he knows how to forget. And says, beloved, at the very end of the passage, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, I haven't, I haven't achieved this end of full conformity to Christ. How could he? He's not, he's not yet died. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And the prize, of course, is conformity to Jesus. The prize is to become like Jesus is in every way, to share in his life in the same way that Jesus is like the Father in every way. And he strains toward that by forgetting. So with, with all that said, let's come to Isaiah, Isaiah 43, and this theme of forgetting in this passage of Isaiah 42 and 43 in, in particular, it's right at the heart, I think, of how we move toward, how we, in Paul's words, how we find a way to lay hold of that which has taken hold of us. That we, we strive to move toward the goal of utter Christ-likeness by by knowing how to forget and how to live in absence and, and how to be absent and how to be forgotten. So this is, this is the passage, Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. Now, he's calling them, notice there's a kind of paradox here. He's calling them to remember the Exodus and promising them a new one, but then immediately telling them not to remember the former things. Now, the former things, in some ways, is just everything that has happened up to this point in your history, but that also includes the Exodus. So he, he calls them to remember it. Remember the Exodus, the Lord who makes the way in the sea. 
do not remember the former things. And this is, this is a subtle point. He's, he's not so much calling them to remember the Exodus as to remember the God of the Exodus. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now, of course, there's no way to know the Lord of the Exodus without knowing the Exodus. But there is a way of, think, of thinking that you remember the Exodus, but forgetting the Lord. And what's crucial, and I think, of course, we're talking here now about all of our knowing. It's possible to remember what the Lord has done in Christ, in our lives, for the church, for the world. It's, it's possible to remember in ways that forget him. It's not possible to remember him and forget what he has done. To, to know him is to remember rightly. But it is possible to remember wrongly. It is possible to forget him even while we are recounting the past. And so he, he insists, do not remember the former things. I'm about to do a new thing. Now this, this is opened up. This theme is opened up in the previous chapter. Isaiah 42. He's naming himself again and again. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Insisting. In, in, in fact, Ricky Moore has shown me that there, there's a concentration of God naming himself in this passage. That's unlike anything else, anywhere else in scripture. Where God just keeps insisting on his identity. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then Isaiah 42, 9. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you. So what has happened has happened. I'm about to do a new thing. And the new thing God is about to do is a new exodus. And then he immediately calls them, verse 10, 42.10, to sing a new song. Sing a new song, right? A kind of celebration of the God who has acted in the past, not merely a celebration of the things that have gone our way. Right? So much of what passes for praise is simply, well, at best, gratitude for what has happened. And at worst, it's just a sense of fortune, of good fortune. Right? Things have gone my way. But we, to sing the Lord a new song is to recognize that God is acting in new ways. Of course, ways that are faithful to what he has always done. And yet, a sense that our knowledge of what has happened in the past does not exhaust the, the character and wisdom of God. And so he says, and then a bit later in, in 42, verse 13, the Lord goes forth like a soldier, like a warrior, he stirs up his fury. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. So as Ricky Moore points out, this is in some ways a way in which they have known the Lord. This is a, a, a knowing of God tied to the former things. The Lord goes forth like a soldier. He's a warrior in his fury. And I think this, this is a major text in the book of Revelation, but that's we don't have time to, to go with that. Notice what happens next, though. Verse 14, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. So the Lord who is a warrior has now fallen quiet. He showed himself mighty against the foes in the past. So there's a, a remembered victory of God. And then there's a time in which God holds his peace. God restrains himself. And of course, we, we can and should believe, right, that God is always active. I think that the Christian theological tradition that insists 
on God as pure act. I think it's it's essentially right, no pun intended. But God's action is also restrained in the same way that we see Jesus restraining himself. That God is meek. That God is, as we say, in self-controlled. And that's one of the reasons it's a fruit of the Spirit. So, so God's life, there's a restraint to it. There's, there's a modesty to it, a meekness to it. God's life with us is marked by a kind of chastity. And right at that point, he says, now I will cry out like a woman in labor. So we get this juxtaposed image suddenly of the, the woman giving birth, panting, gasping in the pain of childbirth, has suddenly come to replace, in a sense, and you'll see in a moment, it doesn't remove it altogether, but it does replace it, put it in a different place. This image of God as warrior in his fury. So we've gone from the fur furious warrior trampling his enemies to this gasping woman giving birth to her child. And then he says, I will lay waste mountains and hills, dry up their herbage, turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by a road they do not know, by paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do. And I will not, for, I will not forsake them. So we, if we come from that, you should read it all, but if you come from that right back to Isaiah 43, the, the passage for Sunday, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Like that is a sense in which the God you have known, the God who was a warrior, who triumphed over your enemies, is now God, the birthing mother, who's in the pains of childbirth. This is the new thing. And that is the way in which God's victory will come. So instead of God used to be a warrior and now he's a, a birthing mother, it's this is the way in which the God who is a warrior is revealing his war, warring to work. This is how God wars. The new thing God is doing is, is the labor pains of this woman bringing her child to birth. And that is what makes a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That's what gives drink to those who were crying out in the psalm, restore the, the waterways of the Negev. And this is what God is promising to do, the people whom I have formed for myself. So what is what, if this is a mother who's about to give birth to a child and then immediately take the child to her breast and feed it. So what, what God is promising you is that he is a warrior who fights your battles. But he is in that the mother who brings you to birth and feeds you, nurses you at his at his breast. And he's formed you for, for life. And your praise, the, the praise of God is perfected in the mouth of babes. Your praise will be perfected when you recognize how this, the unfolding of God's fullness to you reveals that what you did know about God is not all there is to know about God, right? And that, that, that kind of unfolding is why the remembering and the forgetting is so is essential. And why the sense of absence is so necessary. The, the experience of the absence of God in the Christian life is that there is a new way that God is being present that you have your attentiveness hasn't caught up to yet. 
And, and that's what I want to leave you with and, and stress in conclusion that when the reason you need to forget is that there are things in your knowing that are wrong, that are wrongly remembered. And forgetting, letting go of those things opens you up to remembering your past and therefore being present to God's presence in your presence, in your present tense, being present to God's presence in your present that wouldn't be possible as long as you're clinging to the way you've remembered God. I mean, this is what happens with Mary in the garden, Mary Magdalene, right? She can't see Jesus for who he is. She thinks he's a gardener and she's clinging to the Jesus she knew as soon as she recognizes him. What does she do? She falls and clings to him. And he says, do not cling to me. I must ascend. So there's a way in which Mary Magdalene, she does love Jesus. But she loves Jesus as she's known him, as he has been to her, and is therefore not fully able to open herself up to Jesus as he wants to be known by her, and as she actually needs to know him to flourish in her present and her future, to be a mother, a sister, a teacher, a prophet to those who are around her. And that's why I think, to come back to the gospel text in the last 30 seconds, that's what Mary has. You know, there's that question in Isaiah, do you not perceive it? Mary does. And I think the reason Jesus is at home with Mary and Martha and Lazarus is that they see him. They see him. Mary, at least, sees him. And what we want to do during Lent, during all the seasons of our lives, is to cultivate that kind of awareness of Jesus. I want to see him as he is. I want to perceive it. Whenever I'm encountering anyone, the waiter at the restaurant, the, the friend across the table, my child, when I'm having to have the conversation after school about the trouble they got into, that might not be a, an example chosen entirely at random. Like whoever it is, the police officer who stops me for speeding, that is chosen at random. The whatever, whatever it is, I want to be able to recognize Jesus there. To know that I don't always have him, but I do always have him if I know where to look. And I have to look into the poverty around me. I have to look for the ways in which God is laboring to bring to birth new life in the darkness of the poverty around me. And in, in the need that's present to me, including in my own life, as well as the lives of those that I love. And that, I think, is what Lent gives us. It enables us, it's a season that enables us to slow down, to breathe, to pay attention, to listen, to recognize that there are things we should forget so that we can know differently. And all of that is essential to learning to be present to the God whose presence is so good and so overwhelming that we may first experience it as absence. That what seems, and this, this is what the dark night of the soul is. The dark night of the soul is not suffering. The dark night of the soul is acclimating to the greater goodness of God, to the light that is so bright that at this point you can't but experience it as darkness.